everyone. Welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, and I cannot be more psyched to talk with our two guests today. Yeah, very much the same. Today, we're going to be exploring how we can deliberately support our growth and change for the better with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman and Dr. Jordan Feingold. Scott is a cognitive scientist and a humanistic psychologist exploring the depths of human potential. He's a professor at Columbia University, author of 10 books, which as somebody who's co-authored one book, just covers me in amazement and maybe a little bit of dread at the sheer amount of effort involved, including recently his best-selling book, Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization, and host of the very popular psychology podcast. If you like being well, you will probably love that. And Jordan is a resident physician in psychiatry, a well-being researcher, and a positive psychology practitioner. Her research and clinical interests include incorporating positive psychology approaches into healthcare delivery. And together, they're the authors of the recently released Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. So Jordan, Scott, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Oh, what a joy to be here. I was fatigued before, and it's wearing off. Ah, that's so sweet. To start with, so your recent book takes a look at trauma, or the worst, the great losses, great difficulty. And then it has this counterintuitive title, Choose Growth, which seems maybe a little initially counterintuitive, and yet on reflection is really quite brilliant. So maybe Jordan, starting with you, why did you choose that frame? Why growth? And then why choosing? The title comes actually directly from a quote by Abraham Maslow, who said, one can choose to go, go backward towards fear or forward towards growth. Mm. Fear must be overcome again and again. Growth must be chosen again and again. And that was a very inspirational quote for Scott and myself when we were developing exercises and interventions for Transcend, actually. The book he wrote that came out in April 2020 as COVID was becoming on the scene. So we created some interventions for that book. They're in a tiny little appendix in the back of Transcend. And when the pandemic was upon us and became our new reality, we recognized that this would be an incredible opportunity to help help our friends and family and the great public to understand how this could be a potential for post-traumatic growth and what we call post-pandemic growth. And the idea is that it's not just going to happen. It's not even just going to happen from reading a book. We actually wanted to give people exercises and practices so that they could opt in to a growth journey and understand what the science has to say about it. But the idea is that we know from decades of research that terrible things that happen to us could be catalysts for growth. We wouldn't choose uh -huh. the things that happen to us. Those things were, are not necessarily things we would have chosen, but then we are left with them. And then what can we choose? And that's the growth option. And I think that idea about like how a lot of this growth is coming out of difficult experiences, you're, you're nodding to that and alluding to that, points to what seems to me to be a really core tension, which is that in order to grow, we often need to subject ourselves to the uncomfortable, at least to a degree, right? Whatever you want to call it, pushing your comfort zone, whatever else. But we need to stay comfortable enough that we don't get totally overwhelmed. And I'm wondering, for starters, what you both think about that balance in general, 
And also, if you think that there are key things that support people in staying the right amount of uncomfortable. Maslow has this phrase, worthwhile suffering. Hmm. That's something along those lines, like childbirth, you know, like there are a lot of things that we do in our lives that we really feel makes life worth it. I mean, sometimes like there are things that we do to suffer that make our life worth living. And I think recognizing that is a, is a really important point. And then there are lots of things that are annoyances during our daily life. You know, the Buddha would say this is the givens of existence is that you, you can't live a life free of all little annoyances, you know. And, and then there are real significant challenges that are unwanted, unplanned, and go beyond the level of annoyance, right? I think it's a, an insult to say to someone who's been like physically abused that, oh, that's an annoyance. So that that belongs, I believe, in a, a different kind of category. And then for all this stuff, how we interpret and process information is dependent on us, you know, and how we tag something. You know, we talk about trauma as being largely in the eye of the beholder, even though we still want people to be able to acknowledge the pain and suffering they may, may have been through. We we like to we tend to believe in our model, and I'm curious to hear about your your model of trauma, is that what is traumatic for one person might not be traumatic to another person. Yeah, totally. And so taking all these things together, I think that being able to balance and have a higher ratio of what are called positive emotions within the positive psychology field relative to negative emotions, that on the one hand is very important. I think that all that research has shown, even though the specific positivity ratio has come under fire. I'm sure you saw that, Rick, and that whole brouhaha. And Barbara's response, which I thought was excellent as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we should point out, you know, that like science is always emerging and evolving. However, I think it's pretty rock solid. She's, she, Barbara has published enough studies now to show pretty conclusively that try to have a life, uh, Barbara Fredrickson, sorry, Barbara Fredrickson, where you have that life where you have more positive emotions, negative emotions. But given that, make sure you are folding in a healthy dose of worthwhile suffering Mm. in your life. And, 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 uh, you know, kind of doing a formula here and try to minimize as much as possible <laughs> the negative framings of more challenging things, not getting to a sense of hopelessness with it. Why are you laughing? <laughs> oh, it's so funny. From now on, whenever Forrest brings anything up about his first 20 years, I'm just, they relate to me at least. I'm going to say, Forrest, that was just worthwhile suffering. <laughs> you know, all that time I got on your case about not doing your homework. It was just worthwhile suffering, man. Just yeah. Dr. Kaufman, he's, he's written 11 books. I suffer every time I write a book, except for the one I wrote yeah. with uh, Jordan. <laughs> Jordan. And the one I wrote with <laughs> Carolyn, I should say as well. But yeah, co-authors make the world go around, right? But uh, when I'm writing a book by myself, yeah, that's a lot of suffering, but it's worthwhile. I think you're pointing to something actually really cool there, Scott, and really important, which is the value of social support when you're going through mm-hmm. a difficult experience. Just talking about like the things that allow us to continuously choose growth as opposed to whatever the alternative that Maslow suggested was, whatever the exact phrasing of it was, I should say. Yeah. And I think that one of the huge factors for people is do they have a lot of social support or do they feel like they're just kind of on their own? And that was one of the big, the major challenges of the pandemic in so many ways was how it separated people from that experience consistently. Yeah, great point. The single most important predictor of well-being and life satisfaction is that presence of positive relationships. And Mm. I, I think that Scott was talking about some of the suffering we choose 
And then there's the suffering we don't choose. And I think the chosen forms of suffering are certainly a path to finding meaning and learning about ourselves and staying, pushing ourselves out of that comfort zone, as you mentioned, Forrest. And then there's the inevitable suffering that, like in Buddhism, the givens of existence. And Mm -hmm. I think both can be potent opportunities for growth. I looked it up. So I was referencing an unpublished essay from 1964 that Maslow wrote. It's called The Psychology of Happiness, where he argued Mm. for the need to redefine and enrich the entire concept of happiness altogether, contending that we must, must learn to give up happiness as the goal of life. He argued that it is a privilege of human existence to have, quote, worthwhile pain. That's what he called it, worthwhile pain. Examples include childbirth, loving someone very much, even though you suffer their troubles as well, being tortured over your craft. Mm. Good living Mm. and happiness, Maslow contended, must be redefined to include such instances of, quote, miserable privileges. Mm. Perhaps we can define (laughs) happiness as experiencing real emotions over real problems and real tasks, is what he said. Mm. There's a lot in this. First, I'll quote, since you've tossed in the B word, Buddhism, I'll quote Ajahn Chah, great teacher from Southeast Asia, who who apparently said, there is the suffering that leads to less suffering, and there is the suffering that leads to more suffering. Mm. If you do not have more of the former, you will surely have more of the latter. So that's part one. Part two, just to point out that the, the Buddha himself was described as the happy one. And what I've seen in my life have been these kind of fads in psychology that have swung one way or another. And the kind of more recent fad is to really, really sort of prioritize a certain amount of unhappiness, if you will, notwithstanding the research from Barbara Fredrickson and others about the value of emotionally positive experiences. And I'll just point out that, as as you well know, there is the unique category of growth that comes only from pain. There's certain lessons I've learned, certain strengths I've acquired only through painful experiences, including raw survival experiences in wilderness, for example. On the whole, though, Most of our growth happens by internalizing emotionally positive experiences because the resources we want to grow inside are usually emotionally positive, first. Second, most pain, as you know, has no gain. It just wears us down. It generates allostatic load, and it's just a life of quiet desperation, as Thoreau put it. So, you know, there's all that part, and I I find there are certain people kind of in the field who they're just sort of embarrassed about being for happiness or human well-being in a broad sense, as if it's some sort of mushy, dare I say it, feminine value to really stir the pot here, you know, that only California hippies would ever really, really care about. And real people just, if they're not upset most of the day, they're not working hard enough for a better world. And I just want to kind of poke at a lot of that. And uh, all that said, obviously, there, there is inevitable, the Buddha pointed out, his word was dukkha in, in Pali. It's not, it's mistranslated as suffering. It really means there are unpleasant experiences, good experiences end, and life and existence is inherently dynamic, changing, and unstable. But that's not inherently suffering, right? And so it gets really interesting. How in the world can we put up with dukkha? that aspect inevitably of existence while also cultivating the happiness that A, makes us more resilient and B, gives us more to offer others and C, helps us enjoy the life, the profound opportunity of this one along the way. So you can see what I think about it. What do you think about it? I'm so glad that you mentioned growth from positive experiences. I think it is so important and it's sort of baked in to the book and it's something that is so critical. I'm talking to patients about this on a daily basis, but it's not 
really the focus when we're thinking about, well, I guess I suppose it is out of this pandemic, so many wonderful things have happened that we wish to continue and cultivate. Most, I think more intuitively, people are, a lot of people are maybe the negativity bias thinking about some of the downsides and and all that was uncertain and, and was very challenging. I think that, and just to put a pin in the point about suffering is not just the experience itself. It is an interpretation of the experience. It's the subjective digestion of of an experience. So I think that's also just deeply important to note. Just going to quickly just say that it's important to acknowledge that growth can come from so many sources. And almost part part of the growth process is having that openness you know, in itself, like that's sort of part of the growth process is having the openness to knowing it can come from so many different sources. There's post-ecstatic growth, as you just were alluding to, which is the phrase that Annie Ropke uh, coined within the field on uh, being able to have growth from positive, really positive experiences. But there can be growth from, of course, traumatic experiences, experiences that we view as traumatic, but there can be growth from creating the challenges ourselves. Paul Bloom has a a really cool new book where he talks about all the ways humans create challenges for themselves in order to grow. Mm, like having a podcast. What were we thinking? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Solo circumnavigation. You know, why do people do that, right? There's just so many quirky things that humans do. Why would they climb up a mountain without any rope? <laughs> they could die at any moment. And it's not like they're doing those things and then they were like, oh my gosh, I'm so traumatized by it. No, they're like, it energizes them. Mm. I just, yeah, I just wanted to, to just make that point that it's a really a mindset you can snap into where you're like, wow, growth can, can really come from the most unexpected sources. And, you know, and so let's not narrow down, you know, a sort of prescription, the 10 ways to grow, but it's like the infinite ways to grow really. I wanted to follow up on something you said there, Jordan, toward the end, which was the mindset aspect of it, essentially, and like how we were interpreting negative experiences, which isn't quite the same thing, but it feels like it almost has a placebo-y vibe to it. And what I've heard you say in some previous interviews is that if a patient that you're working with doesn't believe that a treatment will help them, you generally steer away from that treatment, even if you think that in general it's a pretty good treatment, because the mindset part of it is such a big part of the effectiveness of of anything that we're doing with somebody. And I wonder if this is kind of the same way with difficult experiences that could lead to growth if somebody framed them in the right way or thought of them in the right way. And I'm just wondering what you think of that. I think that's right. I do think, Mm. and I think that's right, and we don't want to see difficult experiences solely as pathways for growth. Because if we see that, oh, this terrible thing happened to me and jump right to the growth (laughs) and the opportunity Mm -hmm. for growth, we may be invalidating a lot of the pain and bypassing some of the necessary and challenging work of processing and working through and integrating some of that into our experience. So absolutely. And it's not simply this thing happened And now I must grow. And there's this directive and this pressure on ourselves that that will happen. So in your book, Choose Growth, which I love, I just think it's fantastic. This is an unsolicited plug for your book. Super high quality. (laughs) It means a lot coming from you. Oh, my God. Well, thank you. (laughs) Tons of value for people in it. And in this book, you explore eight major themes. Anchor yourself, connect, 
Develop healthy self-esteem. Explore. Love. Harness your strengths. Live your purpose. And become a transcender. So you can just hear already in those eight, each one of which is a little suggestion, if you will. It's kind of a practice suggestion. They're all great. So much we could talk about. I want to start with a couple of things that popped out for me that are maybe not so obvious to people. So one of them is, of course, developing healthy self-esteem. And under that category, you talked about the distinction between developing healthy self-esteem and becoming a narcissistic jerk. So I wonder, maybe I'll throw it your way, Scott, what the heck, if you could just kind of tackle what that distinction is and what's helpful for people to stay on kind of the right side of the line there. I like this distinction, and uh, I am not one to say there's any right side of the line. <laughs> Maybe that's my own sort of uh, <laughs> style, but I uh, work with clients and just try to figure out what's what works best for them. But for yeah. most people, I will say that it doesn't really work for them when they get too arrogant, when they get too thinking that they're inherently superior to others, or even yeah. a, a form of narcissism called vulnerable narcissism, which I study, which is thinking you're entitled to things because of your fragility in some way. Like you feel as though like you should get extra attention in an unfair way. You know, obviously people who are suffering deserve some attention, but, um, but vulnerable narcissism, there's a real narcissism there at the core of it, a real entitlement. And for most people that just doesn't work out for them. They, they, they have that way of being and they keep bumping against walls. And for people who that is the case, you know, there's a healthier form of self-esteem that can be cultivated. Well, for all of us, there's a healthier form of self-esteem that can be cultivated where we don't necessarily think we're better than others. Our self-worth just is that we matter, you know, that our self-worth is just taken as a given that we're enough, not the greatest innately, but we're enough, you know, as a foundation for further growth. And then a sense of self, really healthy self-competence or mastery where you feel authentic pride for what you're doing in this world, as opposed to a narcissistic pride or some psychologists call it hubristic pride, which evolutionary psychologists have argued evolved through two very separate paths, pathways, hubristic pride versus authentic pride. Um, they both were associated with so social status and meets throughout the course of human evolution. But authentic pride tends to be a more psychologically healthy route and also causes a lot less damage to others. What would be the sociobiology of evolving hubristic pride? Well, throughout the course of human history, you know, we always had in the gene pool the aggression and the sort of those who have dominance through brute force and physical intimidation. And mm. it still remains in our gene pool. We still have that. And there are people who have more of those genes that predispose them towards those behaviors. And you could certainly understand why that could cause a separate pathway to the propagation of the species. You know, the genes doesn't, the genes don't care how you obtained reproductive success. It just, and, and survival, you know, the two, the two goodies that genes care about, they don't care how you got survival or reproductive success as long as you got it. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. You could imagine it being selected for in certain ways inside yeah. hunter-gatherer bands and between yeah. bands and all that. So I just wondered with people you work with then in various ways, do you have one or two kind of suggested ways you could mention right now for developing healthy self-esteem? Hmm. Healthy assertiveness is certainly um, the one I was thinking of. There's no such thing as low self-esteem. 
that's kind of a, mis, a misunderstanding in the field. You know, like Roy Baumeister has found that when most people respond to self-esteem surveys, they either score very high or they are around the midpoint. Very few mm. people actually rate that they have very like zero self-worth, right? It's mostly what it is, is it's uncertain self-esteem. So for a lot of people who are struggling with, quote, low self-esteem, what they really mean is that they have a self-esteem that's constantly in flux and which is dependent so much on external validation. And I think a big part of stabilizing that self-esteem and internalizing it is through self-compassion. And this is uh, Jordan's, uh, you know, has written beautifully about this. And Kristen Neff has talked about self-compassion as an antidote to low self-esteem because a lot of people suffering from these self-esteem issues may resort to aggression to stabilize it. There is a good research showing that low self-esteem is predictive of hostility and acting out. But a better way is to show yourself some compassion, some self-kindness and common humanity. Yeah, that's beautiful. So when you talk about building healthy self-esteem in your book, what are one or two things that you suggest that people do to build that healthy self-esteem? Well, the self-compassion is one. Okay, self-compassion, bringing self-compassion to yourself. Okay, good. Yeah, and being able to assert yourself in a healthy way. There, are, Psychologists have distinguished between various forms of assertiveness. There's like antagonistic assertiveness, you know. And I see a lot of that going on in the world today. It's just people, uh, the way they're talking to each other is they're not saying what they really want or need in a, uh, in a very direct yet respectful way. It goes a long way being able to say what you want in a respectful way, even if you completely disagree with someone and being able to harness those skills mm-hmm. and, and not being afraid of asserting yourself as well. I think a lot of people with low self-esteem become people pleasers and don't even realize that their self-esteem shouldn't be dependent on the extent to which others are validating them or others are or the extent to which you're giving to others. You know, there are people who feel like every, anytime they're not helping others or giving to others, they feel worthless. And mm. that is an indication to me of a psychopathology, you know, or, you know, something that could, yeah. that needs to be worked on there. That's too extreme of a self view. Yeah. That's very interesting. One of the things I really liked about your book were all these nuggets in it that told me things I didn't already know or got me thinking in new ways. And so for example, Can you say a little more about the causal links between healthy assertiveness and the development of greater self-worth or self-esteem? Like, why does the one lead to the other? I know it does, but can you kind of walk us through that? Sure. So, and this is my hypothesis that when we can walk the talk and actually see ourselves operating in the world in a way that is in line with a value or ideal that can inherently reinforce itself and build a sense of mastery and competence that is at the core of the self-esteem. And, you know, there we talked about the two faces of self-esteem, the self-worth that I am inherently worthy. And we know that comes, that's developed early on in childhood when our needs were met, when we express them to caregivers. And we can't go back in time and give folks who didn't have those needs met It's hard to unlearn that lack of self-worth that is part of our operating system so early in life. But we can unlearn it, and that is through the presence of positive, supportive relationships and learning how to get our needs met and, and meeting our own needs. And I think that practicing healthy assertiveness and 
understanding that our needs are just as important as other folks' needs, and but not necessarily more so in a global sense. But maybe in this moment, I need to tend to myself before I go out and just give of myself to others. The, you know, the wisdom of the airline industry, just put your oxygen mask on yourself before helping others. I think our ability to enact that can causally lead to a sense of mastery and a reinforcement that, oh, wow, I, we, we are rewarded when we, when we tend to our own needs. That's very cool. And I'll just make a programming note that will hopefully improve my own self-worth, that Forrest has been dropped out by Zencaster. So I am, for the first time in this podcast, flying solo. And, out of uh, your comfort zone, though, how do we get him back? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, how can I grow from this experience? So it's all good. And we may even include this a little bit in the final podcast itself so people understand why his voice has been lost. If it's okay, I'd like to actually ask you about one of the most, for me, counterintuitive and cool elements in your book about choosing growth. The last one, become a transcender. And this relates, Scott, to your previous work on Transcend and the ways that you've sort of built on and played with Maslow's hierarchy, as it were. First off, maybe Scott, what does it mean to become a transcender? And why is that important for people who've been traumatized? Oh, that's the second question is very intriguing. You know, not a, I don't know if, if the transcender road is for everyone. I should say that first and foremost. Maslow noticed that there were two types of self, self-actualizers. There were the type of self-actualizers that were content merely self-actualizing. They would go to their job. They would do a good job. They loved their work. They may even viewed their work as a calling, checked out, went home, spent time with their family, went to sleep, and did it all over again. There's nothing wrong with that path. But he also noticed that there was a subset of self-actualizers, which he called the transcending self-actualizers. And those were people who were particularly motivated by peak experiences in their lives, transcendent experiences. They almost lived for their transcendent experiences. They also tended to have be very committed to B values, which uh, Maslow de- defined as the values of pure being itself, truth, justice, goodness, excellence, you know, there are certain values that they didn't do these things for anything else, but they were goods in and of themselves. They were their end values or B values, values of pure being itself. Scott, can I interject just for others and correct me if I'm wrong on this. I believe that Maslow described the so-called lower or underlying needs as D values. D as in deficiency. Something's missing. Something's wrong. Correct. Right. That needs to be addressed rather than be being values that do not presuppose a lack or a disturbance. That is exactly spot on. Okay. Okay, good. So keep going here. That's great. And in fact, he made a very interesting point that many people, most people, I may, I may be the only one who has ever read his paper where he used the word grumbles at arguing that we have D grumbles and B grumbles. So we have higher grumbles and lower grumbles. Our lower grumbles at the most, it's a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy of grumbles. At the lowest level, we have a stomach, you know, making noises and it's like, okay, we're hungry. We can feel a pang of loneliness and grumble about being, feeling lonely. But he argued that it's good to have higher grumbles. I love this. We want more people on the earth to be 
upset that there's not more beauty in their environment or there's not more meaning or there's not more justice. You don't go to a clinical psychologist with higher grumbles and the clinical psychologist says, okay, let's help you eradicate that. We should be encouraging people to have more higher grumbles. So yeah, I really, I really like that framework. And transcenders, Maslow argued that transcenders are not happier. They actually have more of these higher grumbles, hmm. which makes them live a more meaningful life, not necessarily a more happy life. Hmm. Okay, so given that being a transcender is going to actually make you more unhappy because you have all these higher order grumbles, I'm teasing slightly here. I know, I know, I know. Why is this good for people who've been traumatized? Uh, what a, I mean, it's such a good question. Well, I want to take a step back and say that it's not necessarily that they are not happy people. (laughs) That of course, you know, of course. So I think the ability to have these grumbles is also a real lesson in perspective and in decentering ourselves and our own circumstances. While not totally, I would say, we don't want to dissociate from our own experiences. The idea is to, you know, I'm going to say quest for transcendence and Scott will say, well, it's not a destination. It's a process. It's a, so I don't know if it's really a quest, but these practices that maybe subserve transcendence, I think are some of the very similar pathways that we know are utilized by people who are most resilient to traumas. So for example, the ability to transcend dichotomies, which is the last practices in our book, which is about embracing the the yes and concept from improv and the dialectical behavioral therapy concept of reducing our black and white thinking. I think those skills are critical for folks who have been through some of the most challenging circumstances. Because that could, going back to our initial question of why choose growth, that growth is there is an opportunity for growth in the challenging circumstances. I may experience some of the lowest lows of my life and have some days of dysphoria and not want to get out of bed and not know who to go to to talk about something really difficult. And then part of that process, as I get out of bed, as I engage in behavioral activation, and as I try to cultivate a little bit of gratitude, oh, I do actually have people I can speak to about this. I do actually know someone who's been through something similar and they can provide some perspective. It's breaking down that I have to either be a trauma victim or I have to be a I have to be someone who grows from this. Like that is the stuff of transcendence. It is seeking out the positive emotions even when we are experiencing some level of distress. So that's my attempt and stab at answering the question of why transcendence would be helpful for people who have been through the most difficult experiences. Yes, yes. And the transcenders really have a lot of wisdom and dichotomy transcendence, which is the ability to transcend our ordinary dichotomies that most people have between positivity and trauma, you know, between evil versus good between there's just a greater complexity of thinking about troubles and even victimization and uh, that might get controversial but i do think that there's a certain wisdom there where we don't see the world in such black and white terms that there is always the 100 percent victim and the 100 percent oppressor you know that there's actually a more nuanced view that all of us have imperfections that all of us are whole people with contradictions 
And Maslow is very clear about that as, you know, being able to have that theory. He called it a theory Z worldview is one that is allowed to look at uh, all of humans from a very bird's eye view and recognize that human imperfections are, are very common. You know, when I kind of feel into this as a longtime therapist with people who've been traumatized as well, and one of the things that I think that is so useful is to appreciate, just like you said, the both and, that there can be both this core of pain inside oneself, there can both be injury around it, certainly, I prefer the word injury to damage. Yes. While also there is still what is intact. Yes. And it's so important. It's not either or. You're not denying what's been injured by also taking refuge in what is still intact, which is that a chocolate chip cookie still tastes good. You can still smell a rose, right? When your cat crawls into your lap, it still feels good. Your cat still loves you, right? It's intact. And one of the things that's intact is this intrinsic goodness in your own heart. This is indestructible well of awareness, lovingness, frankly, insight and, and wisdom. And so that's really useful for people who've been just hammered super hard, including currently, you know, by life. So that's one thing I relate to about transcending. Oh, man, I love that you said hammered by life. I, like, I think recognizing that some people are definitely hammered by life, I think, is a good to recognize as well like yeah not everyone is hammered by life to the same degree even though i don't think suffering is a competition i think it's also good to recognize that you know like for us all to kind of recognize our own privileges in a, in a way and i do think i mean just to have someone back to social support in the presence of a therapeutic relationship to help people realize what is still intact because I don't know that that is so intuitive for folks. And sometimes it does need to be explicitly drawn out that all is not broken and there will be easier days. And there, even today, when things seem really dark, there are still so many gifts we possess and beautiful parts of this human experience. So I think that's a, a huge goal of our work is not to suppress the darkness but to let it in mm. in more explicit and deliberate ways while not also, while giving ourselves permission to, to feel the good stuff too. That was well said. Yeah. If I could ask also about a second sort of association I at least have to transcend, it's about transcending oneself. And what I mean by that kind of is to build on the focus from, as you know, Kristen Neff and also Christopher Germer, their work on self-compassion the notion of common humanity, mm. that this happened to me, let's say, this terrible trauma, it was unique, it was unjust, it's, it's had very personal consequences. And without reducing by one atom the injustice of that and the impact of that, it's also true that so many others have been hammered in that way currently and in history, and, and you stand in common cause with them. And there's a really interesting that happens here. It's not dissociation in a clinical sense. It's not depersonalization. It's more like a sense of joining with humanity in the commonness of our pain. And there's something about that that's soothing and lifts you out of yourself, which can, and also obviously when we are traumatized, we tend to curl up around ourselves, both physically and certainly psychologically. And this is more of an opening out, which itself is therapeutic. So I wonder what you think about that. Absolutely. That dissolution of boundaries. And I think we even have a, a practice in the book thinking about 
we sort of do this this extended loving kindness meditation in the love chapter. And we have someone focus their mind's eye on someone who maybe has even harmed them in some way or who they find it hard to love in keeping with the classic loving kindness meditation and actually imagine a brick wall just breaking down brick by brick in dissolution. And I think that the imagery, imagery can be a very powerful thing. And it is so important to have a visual of maybe even hands holding or other, in this common humanity, I think of like a circle of hands surrounding me. Yeah. And I think it's so critical. And without it leading to us undermining our own suffering, like, oh, you know, I'm just one of many people who have been through this. Why should I, why should this be so hard for me? but that it is really I, mm. I am supported by others. Because there, there can be sort of a, an extreme, I think, interpretation of a lot of these things, that there really is this golden mean where we can interpret and, and find comfort in these concepts. That's great. Just to go right at the deep end of the pool as well, so a third kind of transcend, I can imagine, and one that people name is for people in general and also for people who are dealing with loss, pain, challenge, even trauma, is to have a sense that no matter what happens to any individual, the underlying ground is intact. And there can be a sense of the underlying ground is simply the fabric of physical reality, this extraordinary gift that bubbled into being nearly 14 billion years ago. What? Yeah. <laughs> right. Totally. And even more deeply for some, there's a sense that that underlying ground just has some kind of inherent, mysterious, innate goodness to it. Uh, certainly a field of possibility. The Buddha used the language unconditioned, not yet conditioned in a deterministic sense, and eternally timeless, potentially divine even. So that too seems like something that people can find refuge in, notwithstanding how they've been injured themselves. What do you think of that? Trying to process it. (laughs) I think what's really interesting is like literally thinking about the ground. What we know is that some of these traumatic experiences, what makes them traumatic is that they seismically shift our worldview, which is what Tedeschi and Calhoun describe as being almost necessary for post-traumatic growth, that our assumptive world actually has to be challenged in some way. Mm. And I think that for some the ground may feel different pre and post whatever event happened. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm referring to a kind of meta yeah. level, you know, mm-hmm. the ground of all, reality altogether, containing everything, including seismic shifts and worldview. Yeah, so, so even that next level, like transcending what can actually happen to the ground beneath us, I think that it sounds like a conversation that we're hoping folks have in these psilocybin-assisted treatments and thinking about the world and the universe in, <laughs> in these different ways that are much far greater than, than just ourselves. Honestly, because I'm a total talking geek and Lord of the Rings, etc., there's this passage, you may know it, where Frodo and Sam are crawling up the slopes of Mount Doom and, you know, lava's flowing, the orcs are chasing them, the Nazgul are coming, their friends are being slaughtered out on a battlefield nearby. And then Sam looks up and he sees above the clouds through this little hole, a star. The language is something like it, the thought pierced him in a beautiful way that there was eternally light always ever beyond the shadow, you know, Sauron being the shadow could ever reach. And there's that sense that there's some kind of unshakable inherent 
there's an inherent unshakability in the ultimate ground of all, which may and its roots partake of something divine. I mean, that's, that is a refuge for some people. There's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, and there's various theories of consciousness right now. It's not, we're not settled in cognitive science, my field on what exactly consciousness is, but there's, there are certain t- theories of consciousness being a, a universal sort of source that we're all, we're each tapping into, but there is something that pervades nature itself and that has consciousness and even that consciousness is basically fundamental to the universe. So I think that that could play a role in some of your thinking about this. And then, and I, an even more intriguing idea is to what extent is there kind of a fundamental consciousness that is loving <laughs> that, that, that gets really, that gets even oh, yeah. more, more controversial. That gets more, <laughs> more controversial because just yeah. oh, so many people from so many different traditions throughout human ages, but even scientifically now, like my colleagues, such as David Yadin studying the science of transcendence, you find over and over and over again that when people get in mystical states of consciousness, they all describe the same exact thing. And it's usually pure love. And it's like, what's that about, right? It's like, oh yeah, I'm with you. Oh my gosh, what what are they tapping? What's what frequency are they dialed into? Yeah, or are they just having a weird brain hiccup? It's a certain yeah, yeah. kind of yeah. extraordinary delusion. Yeah, yeah, we're not, we're not. <laughs> well, hey, we just have a few minutes, and I want to get this in before we're done, if that's okay. Unless Jordan, did you have more you wanted to say about this super duper deep stuff? I just wanted to say I work with folks who have a lot of delusions, very seldom are they loving delusions. Yes, good point. Yeah, good point. A really, really important point, actually. So, Scott, one of your previous books was called Wired to Create. Nice. Go into the back catalog. Yeah, yeah. We're working on your, your back library, whatever they call it. I don't know what it is. Go back to Ungifted, and then we'll be talking. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd love to go there, actually. Different kinds of intelligences, including kids. Exactly. Maybe a whole other. Let's talk about that some other time. Yeah. Well, I just want to get at the ways in which creativity can be reparative, because there's a lot of agency in it, and there's something profound about it when someone's been traumatized, because kind of what's inherent in trauma is, you know, inescapable pain, that there's helplessness, right? Yeah. Including whether it's a moral trauma that you see something happen to someone else, you know, but still you couldn't stop it. So I I just kind of wonder about creativity broadly as reparative for people who've been traumatized or just more generally have difficulties in life and and what both of you make of that. Maybe we'll finish on this. Creativity is self-actualization. I mean, Maslow really didn't view a distinction between self-actualization, like creative self-actualization. You know, you're creating yourself and very existential. That's very cool. Like the author of yourself. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's it's very existential philosophy, but you create yourself. And and in a lot of ways, that whole process is what allows you to repair because you're making new meanings. You're integrating things that can be integrated to create new higher level meanings. And that's what creators do. That's the, the creative process is, is showing the world new meanings for even some of the worst catastrophes happening to humans and showing it in a different light. You know, artwork, artwork can take some of the most horrific scenes over the course of human history and yet create a beautiful image. Think of that juxtaposition, a beautiful image of a horrific event. You know, our art has such an amazing capacity 
to do that. Not many other mediums can do that. On the inpatient unit for the inpatient psychiatric unit that I work on, the creative arts therapists are are true healers in their modality is through music mm. and movement and the fine arts to do just as Scott was saying, help people rewrite their own stories to express themselves in visualization when they may not be able to put words to what they are experiencing to create someone else to view one's work and actually appreciate it. I just had a a young woman on the inpatient unit who was very deconditioned. She had no medical history and then had a a multi-organ failure after getting pneumonia. And she was very, very sick and couldn't walk because she was just in the hospital for so long. And so she was in bed and all she wants to do is get up and walk. And we asked if the movement therapist could come and see her. And just reading, I, I wasn't there to experience the session myself, but this is a young woman, no, med, no previous medical history, but does have some PTSD and was not very open with us as the psychiatry team about it. But the movement therapist was able to have an amazing connection with her. And even though she couldn't move her legs very much, just hearing through the, the notes in the medical record how she moved her body and how this opened something up in her to be able to share about her past experiences. Mm, so beautiful. this is, I see it every day. I think it is some of the most powerful ways to process what we're going through, to connect with others and to really, yeah, be the creators of our own desired futures. That touches my heart, honestly, hearing this story about this person and just imagining through her many, many others like her. Jordan's really doing an amazing job being a pioneer of this positive medicine and showing that physicians can just go way, way beyond what uh, they're just trained in medical school. You know, they can, they're allowed to treat a person as a human. Giving physicians permission to do that is, I I just think it's revolutionary. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, I saw that phrase, positive medicine in, um, I think, your bio on Amazon. And it just really popped out to me. That's great and important. To finish here, just reflecting, we have focused a lot on the individual level, on what's helpful for people to heal within themselves and take in within themselves and grow within themselves. And then, of course, part of that is for everyone else, too. You know, as we heal ourselves, we have more we can offer others. There's the old phrase, you know it, uh, hurt people, hurt people. Yes. And uh, as we become less hurt ourselves, you know, our, our footprint on others gets better and, and we can also wish others well. So I wondered if we could maybe close in a way that we've never done on the podcast, maybe because I'm in the driver's seat. I want to ask you a question that I've thought about a lot, which is if you could, knowing what you know in your different domains and the life experiences you've had as a person, if you could get a billion people to spend five minutes a day doing one thing in particular, what would it be? And to be clear, there's no right answer, but it's sure a good question. You can imagine a billion people taking the pledge, as it were, to do this particular thing for five minutes a day. Yeah, I think that it would definitely involve some version of engaging with another human being, whether that is calling up a loved one or doing an act of kindness for a neighbor, but something interpersonal that would have the opportunity to grow on itself. Something that, uh, and I guess, you know, in service of someone else, maybe I'd say doing something good for another person 
whether it's a stranger or, or a loved one. Beautiful. How about you, Scott? I was just, I was going to say a loving kindness meditation. And uh, I recognize that it doesn't directly engage another person, but one of my dear friends, Sharon Salzberg, has convinced me of the broader value to self and others for mm. being able to set certain intentions, um, even for your enemies. And uh, I just think if a million, a billion, a billion people did that every single day for five minutes, we'd have less political fighting on Twitter and maybe less wars. Well, that's great. What would you, what would you want them to do? I would have them spend five minutes a day what, in what I call the green zone, which would be what Maslow and would probably call the B zone, in a sense, to just deliberately come to rest and have a, an authentic sense of needs met enough in the moment for safety, satisfaction, and connection as arguably three broad umbrella needs that cover a lot of ground. So you feel in the moment, you know, a sense of in this moment, I'm not under attack. I'm here. I'm present. I can release needless anxiety. In this moment, I can feel there's an, an enoughness that opens up a kind of contentment. And there's an enoughness and a fullness and a balance. And so there's no basis for the craving that the Buddha marked as uh, the cause of so much suffering and harm. And just to rest in the green zone, which most people don't spend more than 10 seconds a day, really, in the fullness of the green zone, because we tend to be chasing one thing or another. So, And then when you're in that mode, you're less manipulated by fear and anger. and You're less greedy and you're less prone to conflict with others. So I've have people do that. So what we need is 15 minutes to do all of those things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Let's see. So we're going to go in the green zone and then we're going to practice loving kindness and then you're going to interact with another person. I like it. Why well, think small, right? 15 minutes a day. It's not so much, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been a, such a pleasure to be with both of you. And I know Forrest regretted getting booted out, but it was a force beyond his control. And you're both truly, from my heart, I can say you're both just such estimable people. Excellent, wonderful, good. And thank you for doing this with us. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. It means a lot. This is a real highlight of my life. Oh. So, truly. <laughs> thank you so much. Hey everyone, so I'm back. As Rick mentioned during the conversation, unfortunately, I had a technical issue during this one. There was a general internet outage while we were having the conversation with Scott and Jordan, which was, as you can imagine, a real bummer for me in the moment. But thankfully, I was able to have the first part of the conversation with them, and then I listened to the rest of it. So I'll do my best here to provide you with a bit of a recap. We started today by talking about the emphasis that they placed on the idea of choosing growth. That's the title of their new workbook, Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. And I think that that emphasis on deliberately choosing to grow or change or be different is, is really important. And it's one of those things that on the one hand sounds really obvious, and on the other hand is completely essential, right? Because I think that a lot of people think that like change just happens to them. And one of the things that I've hammered over and over again on this podcast, and you can probably just say it with me at this point if you've been listening for a while, is the importance of individual agency, feeling more like a hammer and less like a nail. And so I think that framework of how are we going to deliberately choose to grow and change over time rather than just 
feeling like change is a thing that happens to us is really powerful and, and very personally useful. It certainly has been for me in my life. We then spent the bulk of the conversation talking about various themes that arise inside of the book. These themes include things like developing more healthy self-esteem, harnessing your strengths, living your purpose, and then becoming a transcender. And Rick asked Scott and Jordan what it means to become a transcender. And this, of course, connects to Scott's previous book, which is Transcend. And I thought that all of that material related to Maslow and our hierarchy of needs and what leads to us actually feeling satisfied in life was really interesting. And I think that there was actually a really useful interplay between that part of the conversation and when they were talking about developing more healthy forms of self-esteem. Because one of the things that we talk about on the podcast a lot, and it's something that we get a lot of questions about, relates essentially to narcissism. Like, how can I develop more healthy self-esteem without turning into a flaming narcissist or otherwise being somebody that other people just aren't going to want to be around very much. And this whole idea of like what is good self-esteem has been a real hot-button topic in the personal growth world for a while now. And as time has gone on, we've gotten more and more comfortable with the idea that everybody has narcissistic traits. Narcissism is a spectrum that exists inside of everybody. But the question is, are we fulfilling those traits in ways that feel good to us and fill us up or ways that tear other people down. And one of the things that's interesting to me about this whole conversation is that it rests on a real fundamental misunderstanding of where narcissism comes from. A lot of the time people think that narcissists essentially have too much self-esteem. But while it might be true that narcissists have a lot of unhealthy forms of self-esteem, they tend to have very little healthy self-esteem. And narcissism broadly is thought to come from a fundamental lack of feeling like you are worthy enough just as you are. So you have to fill yourself up with this big external performance of worthiness in order to fill the hole in your heart. And so one of the things that really supports our own growth, our ability to become a transcender, is feeling like we are worthy, feeling like we are important, feeling like it matters whether or not we feel good and are healthy and are on our own side. And of course, Rick, as Rick is often really good at doing, pulled things into the deep end of the pool where he talked with Scott and Jordan a little bit about what supports him when he was talking about kind of finding that underlying ground of being or this feeling of something that just keeps on going on that is separate from a single, narrow, egoic self, and that that becomes a real support for him personally and in his life and in his practice. So we had a great time speaking with Scott and Jordan. Again, I was just gutted that I couldn't be there for the whole conversation, and it was a real bummer that I had the tech issue, but hey, it happens, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to speak with them again in the future, and I can be there for the whole conversation. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to the show, maybe leave a rating and a positive review if you listen on a platform that allows you to do that. And hey, you can tell a friend about it. It's probably the best way we have to reach new people. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.